Hello and welcome to the Dicer Screaming Podcast once again. Yes, I'm Randy. I am called Mike. And together we form the mighty gestalt known as the Dicer Screaming, the literary two-headed etten of podcast gaming. Ah, I beg to differ once again. I, oh? I can't let you have that one for free, bro. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, that's far too much praise for a humble show like ours. We, we are but the pre-pillaged village of gaming podcasts. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Literally, there was nothing there when you showed up. And uh, yeah, all right, you won the battle. There's, yeah, but... There's you, no loot. You won, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. All right. Hope everybody's out there doing fine. We're here just uh, plugging away. Got a great show lined up for you. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Cyberpunk Red's data pack. Uh, had time to look it over, and yeah, it's been long overdue. Nice folks at Arch House Orient sent us this for our review of Cyberpunk Red. So uh, we're going to be featuring this. This is a really great product. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit, just to start up with, uh, on some of our plans coming up here. We're going to be looking at some new 5th edition. But speaking of the future, what does the future hold for our what? podcast? Oh, you call upon the arts of the Galascopper. Oh. Yeah, he's not as feared as some of the other more dramatic diviners, okay? Like, you know, when I back when it was like I had to crawl through sheep guts or uh, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, it seemed more imposing as a form of divination, so I, I may change it up soon. Uh, but the less dreaded Gelascopper must examine laughter, so I'm going to need a laugh. I'm going to have to... Ha, 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 ha. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that is some low-quality laughter there. But it does reveal the future oh. of a high-quality podcast. Really? Uh, Do well, tell. For us. Yeah, next week... We're having a peek at Critical Role and its recent release of The Legend of Vox Machina, which, ah, not to spill too many beans early on, but like, it's going to be a pretty positive review. I mean, it's going to be an examination of the origins of the phenomena that we now call Critical Role. Uh, and it's something of an examination of their like slow rise to being quite the success story and then an examination of their most recent offering uh, which wow uh pretty fun show to watch so yeah don't don't expect like a harshly critical oh no you know like we're not even going to pretend about it we're not gonna lie it's gonna be a pretty positive review they're there will be a look at some of the moments of conflict along the rocky path to their, their current status. But yeah, overall, a happy look at the influence that this has had on the gaming atmosphere. All so, right. Yeah. yeah. And coming up on their uh, 10th anniversary, it's pretty timely. So for once, we're on time. Yeah. I don't know how that happened, but <laughs> here we are. Yeah. We're still apologetic to you know, Rutger Hauer for like, we should have done that in 2019. Like the minute you died, we should have done a special podcast to say how much we miss you. Yeah. And uh, our Calsorian sent me this uh, nice uh, cyberpunk red data pack. Yeah. And that's what we're covering first today. Yeah. So we're going to get into that. It's been a long time and long overdue. So uh, Mike's had some time to spend with it and look it over. So let's, uh, let's unpack it, man. Uh, so this comes in a nice little uh, pouch and you pull it out and you've got some maps, a whopping pad of character sheets. 
just ready to be filled out. Uh, yeah, look, if you're a little concerned that those Friday night firefights might tear through your characters in, in short order, uh, here is the principal offering, uh, which is a most excellent sized pad of character sheets for the fast preparation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, you can use these for NPC preparations too if you want fully fleshed out NPCs that are going to be uh, in crossing paths with your characters more than once. Mm -hmm. uh, I, obviously, as DMs, we both advocate the use of a note card for like when you've got horde of 40 gangers. Uh, hey, nobody cares about all their stats. Don't, don't use something this good quality on that. But yeah... Yeah, if you play cyberpunk the old-fashioned way, and there's going to be a casualty count, you're, you're going to want a fresh pad of character sheets. So they were very generous with those. Now, uh, and in our finest uh, tradition, <laughs> I, I feel like the guy in the like doing those Las Vegas uh, product sale pyramid sales ads, you know. <laughs> but wait, there's more. And that brings us to the second offering included here. How'd you give a little description of these? Oh yeah, these are uh, some very handy maps, about six of them. They're double-sided, so they uh, serve a, a variety of places uh, for scenes, such as your typical parking garage, uh, your top of buildings, uh, roadways, and streets, as well as a marina and other, uh, even uh, included in this scenario, these would be used. But uh, various areas and locations you're going to find. So 12 uh, nice size maps that can be put together or aligned for a nice urban game and uh, for definitely for strategic firefights. This is uh, an important thing. Like a lot of them have, like on the streets. Yeah, six double-sided maps. Uh, and in some cases, you know, the, these can be marginally interlocking if you choose. But yeah. uh, for the most part, uh, they just give you these fabulous snapshot of an area what street corner did this happen on firefight go well yeah you know night city's not an easy place to cross during the middle of the night and fridays <laughs> is especially daunting so. <laughs> yep he's uh, reused you know, multiple times in multiple ways so they have a lot of play value and plus the fact that you know hey they just included them in there because you know miniatures are a thing Hey, and a lot of the older school gamers uh, who remember, like, Cyberpunk... Cover is important. Yeah. Remember these essential rules from War Games minis. Uh, and Cyberpunk, being one of those games that has made it into the modern era after having emerged from the ancient era, still has a connection to those terrific roots of miniatures wargaming. And bless them for doing so, because it clarifies a lot for the DM... And let's face it, there can be a lot of confusion in a firefight. Uh, having a situation where your players are obligated to make their actions clear and known uh, and during their phase, and that is when their miniature moves. And as soon as their hand comes off it, it's like chess. You know, your hand is off the piece, the move is considered complete. You know, you, you can adjudicate a little more smoothly without that. Like, but that's not what I did. Dude, you're the one who put it there. <laughs> There will be yeah, none so of when that grenades nonsense. got to go flying and area effects, you know, this is a nice way to keep track of all that during combat. But uh, the other thing is uh, in there is also the, uh, there's a nice uh, thick little booklet of NPCs, encounters, scream sheets, 
which provide lots of information for your uh, future games, as well as ones you're going to be running in two plushed out scenarios to run. Yeah, this is about 35 pages of material uh, in one, you know, it, it feels slender, but it has a surprisingly level or a surprisingly attractive level of information inside the Cyberpunk Red data pack. And, you know, this is the, but wait, there's more moment where after having discussed, yes, okay, you've got your character sheets, essential component of every like hardcore cyberpunk campaign uh, where you're going to be burning through some new characters from time to time. And then you've got your bonus maps, which I think were a terrific perk for spelling those out. But this, okay, you know, we, we've had the side dish and the potatoes. This is the meat. Okay, time to cut into the steak. Yeah, and the table of contents lays everything out. Uh, they give you almost a dozen uh, scream sheets there talking about various things in there. And uh, by uh, scream sheets, this would be like news releases. Yeah, news little faxes that uh, because nobody uses faxes anymore, you might have to explain that. But so they call them scream sheets, and it's just basically like news at the moment glance. And you can use this to highlight upcoming adventures or summarize things that have already happened in Night City. Yeah, and the concept of a scream sheet dates back to that era in the 1980s when, uh, you know, we were watching news begin to morph. Um, in the late 20th century and we were beginning to see an evolution from uh, thoughtful examination into buzzword where like we have so much we want to squeeze in to a 24-hour news cycle that we're not going to give you any serious examination of a topic we just blitz you with a few blurbs and like boom, 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 boom. We hit you as fast as we can with all the information we can get to you. Yeah, like the, one of the, the scream sheet concept uh, in Cyberpunk. I just I want to say that that was one of those thoughtful, almost critical social commentaries that is a part of the lifeblood of the Cyberpunk tradition. That it's a it's a subtle critique. Right. One of the headlines uh, says Militech exec sacked for ethics violation, and you're just like, really? I'm not. <laughs> Here's my total lack of surprise. <laughs> he had one left. <laughs> we have detected, you know, we've detected ethics in him, and therefore we were throwing him out. Also, you know, the typical one, gang activity increases. Well, uh, that's a typical night in, oh, it must be Friday. Yeah. <laughs> Help rebuild Night City. Uh, or Forlorn Hope gets hit. Uh, the hint of these is not exactly what you would call fleshed out adventure concepts, but there's a little homage here. Yeah, there's little tidbits. To can... Forgotten Realms and the peppering of the campaign setting with things that might give the game master an idea to base a scenario off of. Okay, and I highly approve of that. Like Everybody who has heard this podcast many times knows how much I approve of leaving behind a trail of breadcrumbs that lets GMs fill in the blank, okay, where your creativity then takes off and does the rest with this. How can you incorporate this into your existing campaign structure? This little booklet is all about that. And boy, so yeah, I got some love on for this. Yeah, and the two scenarios that are uh, well fleshed out here uh, provide you with a cargo chase, basically a snatch and grab extraction type uh, I was about to say Shadowrun, but uh, 
little uh, run as well as another one, which, well, hey, the name, it says it all, Don't Fear the Reaper. <laughs> but Cargo Race and Don't Fear the Reaper are pretty well uh, fleshed out and ready to go with their own scream sheets. And, of course, if you don't want to use them, you can just salvage the scream sheets and make up your own adventure. Well, there's, uh, uh, like, a, the Digital Divas Burn It Down handout. Yep. The Don't Fear the Reaper handout and mission. Uh, the Cargo Race handout and mission. The Snuff handout and mission. And the Thrill Kill handout and mission. Uh, yeah, by handout, of course... I believe what they mean is like here is the information for the scenario and then the second would be the actual complications and difficulties of the scenario. Uh, the, the stats are loosely provided. Uh, this is not completely fleshed out like finished module version. Right. Uh, Only two of them really I think can get the full treatment but that's fine. Uh, the other ones are for you to provide the rest of the information for. But they have stuff like net, net architecture and stuff for your net runners and all that figured out for you. So that can help. And then 20 things in Night City. There's a whole section on this. and Not go, just 20 things, okay? It's 20 of this and 20 of that and 20 of this and 20 of that. Like, Yeah, you can go through like 20 freelancers of Night City when you just need an extra runner to beef up the team. Or, you know, what's found in a subdermal pocket. <laughs> 20 hot That's spots. That's not rust. You. Yeah, 20 hot spots in Night City. So 20 nightclubs where a meeting could go down. Uh, each rather unique with descriptions of owners and typical clientele. Uh, and then. Even uh, adventure hooks in them. Yeah. Again, uh, they are fairly liberal with just dropping the breadcrumbs all over the place and being the kind of GM who is attuned to make use of exactly those kinds of things. I, man, it was just like, you know, when you get that really good popcorn uh, at a movie theater that mm -hmm. is not stingy on the flavoring. Hmm. Okay. And you, you start like you start nibbling and then you kind of lose track of time. You know, you're watching the movie. You're not really thinking about what you're doing. And you realize later that you ate the entire tub that's what I felt about like this. Oh, okay. I, I, I started, it didn't seem like it was going to be that amazing. And then I got hooked and didn't know it. And I was finished way sooner than I was ready. So like, but, but why isn't there more? Uh, safe houses in Night City, which, mm. hey, if you're playing real cyberpunk, uh, not to gate gatekeep too harshly, but if you're playing it hardcore, if you don't have a safe house or an exit place to hole up in and lick your wounds, yeah, you're going to regret it. Because, uh, I mean, a lighthearted cyberpunk campaign is not an impossibility, and I'm not going to diss people for having a lighter-hearted approach. Uh, but there have been some brutal missions in both cyberpunk and uh, uh, Shadowrun where it... You needed a safe house. You had to back away to somewhere. Like, oh man, all right, we got to get fresh arms. Yeah. <laughs> like, I am super low on this like high end ammo for for my primary weapon because I used it all up getting us out of that last scenario. Nobody said like the entirety of corporate security was going to descend on the building in three minutes. Cripes. <laughs> uh, so the the safe houses. 20 random things found in a subdermal pocket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, 20 vendors at Mr. K's markets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yep, and you know, there, there's always the vendors on every street corner that you can just go find things like, hey, look, a three pack of condoms or used panties. <laughs> hey, or you can find a completely furbished heavy handgun. It could happen. It can happen. They're all on the table. That's what I like about it. It's just totally random. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, hey, that doesn't make any sense. Well, <laughs> just think like if eBay went on strike and everything just like went all over the place. <laughs> they had to send it somewhere to make a mon- some money off of it somehow. This is what would happen. So, yeah. Uh, Cyberpunk Red Data Pack. Full thumbs up. I mean, there's just no... Um, the one thing is, I made me think that if the handouts were uh, loose leaf, that might have been a little bit better. Because handing them out, you know, photocopying them is, uh, you know, if you have a printer scanner, then, yeah, that's cool. You can also download the files, too, uh, on a PDF and print them out that way. Or make up your own. Uh, you know, there's a lot of free stuff off the Cyberpunk or Ralph Halsorian Cyberpunk page. So you can get that, the screen sheet generator from there. But uh, that said, uh, my one criticism would be, like, a lot of the screen sheets, if they just had them as handouts with them a little bit better but i can't really complain because of what the offering is for about 20 bucks you get a lot of bang for your buck on this one and if you're running cyberpunk red and for any stretch of time this is going to pay back dividends enormously yeah if you have a dedicated cyberpunk group then yes this is the thing you want okay now if you're just an avid reader this may not be the most essential material to you uh, but they've kept the price point very reasonable for the amount of material that you get. And I, again, approve of that. Okay, this was not a gouge. Like, oh, we're going to squeeze the most out of screen. No. Uh, Artelsorian Games has a long and storied tradition of providing a lot of material online that is just like, here, have some stuff. Dude. Plus, the uh, kibble advertisements are just fucking hilarious. Yeah. Uh, can I just say that... that... You know, kibble is the uh, cheap soy food that's in a bag and you pick it up and, you know, they try to dress it up as something fancy. (laughs) Continental brands, kibble. Oh, man. They do. Now in filet mignon flavor. And and again, uh, special nod to the the folks at Cyberpunk, Mr. Pondsmith, the tongue-in-cheek sense of humor about, you know, like uh, 21st century capitalism um, and you know, corporate brands uh, and advertising culture. Uh, The vicious critiques of those have not gone unnoticed, okay? Uh, As a guy who I I believe I explained some time ago in a much earlier episode that like I I come out of a background where I was theoretically educated to pursue uh, a career in marketing and advertising and uh, broadcasting. And I, I had a moment of sudden total awareness where I went, I cannot possibly do this with my time. This is the worst conduct human beings can engage in and I want no part of it. Uh, So here's a game that seems to share my uh, love of just roasting advert culture. Uh, So (laughs) uh, yeah, if you want to find the way to my heart, uh, poke vicious fun the cheesiness and crassness of advertising. Uh, and boy, oh boy, our folks at Cyberpunk really do that. Thanks, Artel Sorian. Your winners in our book. All right. So, yeah, thanks for the uh, free stuff. Hey, hats off. I mean, I like free stuff. I know. 
the data pack. Uh, I gotta say, if you're if you're engaging in a serious cyberpunk campaign play uh, with regular use of familiar characters, yeah, it's a gotta get. Yep, and for twenty dollars you can't beat that. All right. So talking about things you can, I'd buy that for a dollar. Uh, <laughs> talking about your future shock, we're gonna shift gears. Hopefully not. Uh, break your necks too much as we go right into we just did the future and the present yeah well we were talking about the future in the present but now we climb in the wayback machine with mr peabody all right and where do we go we're going to talk about against the giants a trilogy of adventures that were originally published in three monochrome booklets about eight nine pages one of them's 12 here yeah so you know the Classic G1, G2, and G3, uh, setting of the Hill Giant Chief. Yeah, this is part of our, this is the next installment in our super series, where we talk about the original campaign super series of modules. Uh, we now have campaign sets, and if you recall our War of the Crown episode so recently, uh, you know, that was a six-volume uh, accomplishment on the part of Paizo. Well, the idea of the campaign length, you know, take you from first level all the way up into those like high teens or like maybe 20 even, uh, that zone, um, that concept emerged holistically in D&D out of an unlikely bundle of modules that just happened to have the right pace from level to level, more or less. Uh, and our last examination on this subject was the Slaver series, uh, A1 through A4. Yeah, and these were not put together yet, but like we covered Scourge of Slave Lords, that would be compiled where like T1, which was Village of Hamlet, and the supposedly and off-delayed Temple of Elemental Evil was actually a much larger module that was a super module T1 through 4. And uh, after that, they started to look at it. You know, this kind of segues pretty well into Slavers and then the Giants and the, and the Drow and then Queen of Culumates, finally in the Queen of the Demon Web Pits where you come face to face with the real power behind all this. North. And yeah, so. <clears throat> Uh, here we are talking about uh, some modules way back from the day uh, 1978 these first came out and uh, yeah Advanced Dungeons and Dragons was just starting to get underway. I think they had released the uh, Player's Handbook and uh, Monster Manual been out in 77 but uh, yeah yes. uh, preceded by the, the DM's guide yeah and these would later be recompiled into G1 through 3 but uh, we have the uh, monochrome and we have the uh, also module there, which kind of fluffed it up a little bit, but not much. So, yeah, there was not a great deal of content fluff uh, in the reissue. They had simply combined all three modules into a single booklet. Uh, the like G1 through G3 against the Giants section of the campaign. Uh, but in this, we're looking at the original monochrome releases, uh, which. <laughs> oh man, uh, they open with G1, Steading of the Hill Giant Chief, which you have learned of the alliance between the giants, which are now uh, rampaging through human lands, 
Uh, and they had an alliance with these slave lords that you so recently... Well, that would be a later thing, but here is the basically, uh, in this, just as presented, uh, nominally the giants have uh, been working together. Usually they're fractious and clannish, and they rarely work together. But here you have the hill, frost, and fire giants all working together. And so you are nominally sent to find out what is behind this strange alliance and who or what is truly the power behind all this. And so you get underway real quickly. They said it nominally in Greyhawk, but uh, it is this is one of the first ones where, yeah, it, it is mentioned, but they also back away from that. If you They quite clearly state that if you have a similar place in your campaign world, use that instead. You're not required to use that. It was, it was kind of a sticking point back in the day. Some people felt like uh, TSR pushed their own house campaign too much, but we also have to remember that World of Greyhawk was only tenuously fleshed out. Uh, I think the folio came out in 78 or 79, so this would be about right about that time. Yeah, they were working very hard to... The box set wouldn't make its full appearance until 73, or 83, excuse me. Yeah, the impression that they were bigfooting everybody else's campaign ideas, uh, I I think it's a little bit on the disingenuous side because the timing was such that they really didn't have the World of Greyhawk campaign setting firmly entrenched in other gamers' minds at this stage, uh, at the the initial release of these modules. Right, you had heard about it from the earlier uh, White Box set uh, booklets. I honestly think it was just the Greyhawk uh, supplement. You know, automatically assumed that the purchaser, if they chose to make use of it in another setting, would simply do so. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's lost on us today because this is one of the things where if you were around in the day, yeah, that sometimes it was a fractuitous uh, subject to bring up because people felt as like you know, TSR should just you know make rule books and not uh, make games to play them in. You know, that's up to each individual DM. And sure, hey, fair enough. But a lot of people were hungry for stuff too. And this one uh, starts off right there. Yeah, I, I don't recall having that argument with people. Uh, but that was mostly a crowd of people who were older than I was. Uh, the people who like kind of emerged at the table uh, were college-aged in 1976, 1977. Uh, there was a perception that hey, your job is just to give us the rules system and we're here to be the creatives and decide what like is going to be the, the product at the table. Uh, and then there were, of course, others who were like, hey, you know, if they make a new thing, I'm kind of into that too, whatever. Yeah, uh, and, and you know, so we're making a little bit us. about how people would blanch when there was a mention of official campaign material in a uh, what was supposed to be a setting neutral product because there was no uh, setting. I mean, yeah, you had the judges guild and stuff like that, but... But um, more on that, maybe another topic for another day. But yeah. getting on to this uh, right away, there's a lot of good instruction right away for the uh, DM right getting ready to run this. There's a cautionary note as well as a starting point that gives the players a well-hidden little uh, place to hole up should things go sideways. And uh, we'll break this down in a little a jiffy here, but just giving it an overview, the three are presented pretty much the same way. They have a start, so you don't have to have played the previous one. So, like, when you get to the uh, Glacier Rift of the Frost Giant, you know, or the know, they, they give you some instruction. If you haven't played it, you know, the, the previous one, you can just assume that you've been sent there. Because it says, like, it's assumed the party's either followed a map or from the setting or... Uh, 
use the magical chain pound there. And if you haven't played it, then there's a lot of uh, ways that you can get players involved into this one. And because they were presented as three, you know, the uh, preclusion was, or assumption was, that you may not have picked up the first two when you get to the uh, Hall of the Fire Giant King. So you could just play this cold. And uh, no pun intended. So there was a lot of stuff in here. Uh, not a lot of surprises as far as these go. They uh, definitely have nice little fold-out screen that you could use to have the maps in the blue monochrome. And a little trivia for the blue monochrome on that. It was hard to photocopy. That's why they used the blue monochrome. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, that, that was a thing. And, um, you know, these three modules presented together kind of seemed like, why were they presented as one, two, and three? Well... Presumably it was to save money or make more money. Um, people are someone a little bit more hardened uh, consumers back in the day. I mean, we do have to remember that uh, it was coming out of the 70s and people were very conscientious about how they spent their dollars. So when the uh, new reissue came out, that also caused a, uh, the, the compilation caused a little rackling of feathers because they're like, oh, they're just trying to double their profit, make new money off of what people already have. But hey, my first uh, brush was it was getting G's uh, one through three as a compilation. So I appreciated that because it put all three together. And a few more thoughts on that right after we return from our break. Yeah, we're going to wrap it up and bring it back to you. So stick around. Okay. We're back, and that brings us to like my, my little closer on the, the topic oh. of the unique facet of early, I guess, mid-70s D&D. There was a certain legitimacy to complaints about the capitalization of the game and you know TSR becoming kind of a market-driven entity because this the entirety of the game came out of these little manuals that got passed around at college campuses, which were one of the only places that like you could be sure you had access to a Xerox machine to to mimeographs and things like that. You may not find that like they didn't have like Kinko's copies or Office Max, you know, down the street from you. That didn't exist in 1976. Okay, that wasn't there. None of that infrastructure or no internet, you know. Yeah, your very large campuses might have a, a copy uh, office or store available but yeah all the big stuff was not there so a lot of this material when it fell into the hands of a student at a university and they formed a little role-playing group and like they converted from miniatures play to rpg play the rule books well they were in such short supply that they would just photocopy them for a friend mm -hmm. and the rules would then travel with the next person to another university during a transfer or like, well, I've completed my four-year degree, but I'm, I'm getting into the you know, postgraduate program over here. And this is what led to uh, the game spreading outwards exponentially, especially amongst highly literate nerds. So <laughs> also very broke students, but he's an art student. He's struggling. But how can you tell? He's an art student. Yeah, I totally accept the critique that, uh, you know, the capitalization of the game, the, the um, presence of TSR as a financially concerned entity uh, was an issue. But frankly, in my opinion, it was certainly within their rights. It was their IP. You know, this is their intellectual property. This is their creative endeavor. Uh, and they 
again, it's not like in that era, it was a huge crime to photocopy stuff. Uh, that was expected that some people would go and do that. So the resentment that there were materials put out uh, to entertain or uh, capture the interest of readers and players, I, I don't get the resentment. You know, bless them. Uh, they, they wanted to create right. more I... stuff. They wanted to be more prosperous and more successful. And they did the work. They did the publishing. And they got the materials out. And G1 through G3 is yet another one of those early products that made quite the dent, starting with Steading of the Hill Giant. Yeah, and you can figure that, you know, right off the bat, you get uh, B1, which is in Search of the Unknown. Yeah. Which is in monochrome, uh, sitting on the shelf over there. It, uh, too, had uh, an introductory face. But, you know, when your first couple offerings are against the Giants, let's see what's on the back cover of uh, the first one. What's the other? Yeah, it was a picture of the actual steading of the Hill Giants. Well, no, uh, here it says, uh, this item is one of the many popular playing aids for Dungeons & Dragons produced by TSR Hotness. And they had Dungeon Geomorphs set 1, 2, and 3, uh, D&D character record sheet pad. And uh, that was, what, two ninety eight. Yeah, so each one of these modules ran for four forty nine, about 5 bucks a pop. And... Uh, yeah, the only ones that they had was G123 and modules D12 and 3. So, uh, Descensions to the Depths of the Earth, the Shrine of the Kotoa, and Pulse of the Drow. So, yeah, your first offering from TSR was not a small one. This, uh, the, uh, These were high-level adventures. I mean, you, you just couldn't walk in. This wasn't for your first-level introductory adventure. This was like 8 to 12. Was about you know your characters are going to have to be pretty high level to get through here. Yeah, <laughs> so that, that's a big thing right off the bat. Is from the first offerings out of a commercial uh, module for TSR itself, it's pretty high level stuff. So yeah, well let's uh, let's was, get started here. Let's let's dig right in. All right, let we launch now. Uh, as you open with G one, it contains the familiar. Uh, exterior cover, which doubles as the map for both the upper and dungeon levels of the Hill Giant Chief Steading. The actual booklet itself in the original run uh, was tiny. Eight uh, pages. Just man. eight little pages, which, you know. But such information packed in it. And oh. it wasn't due to anything about the stat blocks because they don't even give stats, they just give hit points. It's presumed that you'll have a copy of the Monster Manual or uh, an opportunity to examine the back of the first edition DM's Guide, which included a very quick uh, yeah, reference brief. section in the back uh, that allowed you to uh, pull up most of the statistics available in the Monster Manual. Now, obviously, uh, the lengthier descriptions and uh, explanations of how to adjudicate uh, certain monster powers, those were not present in the DM guide, but uh, it was intended for the player or uh, game master to fill in the obvious blanks. Like, hey, you know, you've got a booklet that explains what a the hill giant is like. What's the armor class of an ogre? Well, you're going to have to have the book open. So, yeah. So, so know, yeah, there's no real stat blocks in here at all. That probably saves a lot of space. They just went with the, the, uh, well, at the time, was a bare-bones approach, just giving you the hit points and uh, treasure and some pertinent details to get through the each encounter area. 
So using the map, you know, your players are going to have to find a way to get into the setting. And there's a nice, uh, very creepy intro of this, of this setting. It's just not a, uh, hey, there's a, like a wood palisade with some kind of uh, giant sized log cabin house in the middle. No, it's kind of creepy when you read about it. <laughs> so taking some time to read through that helps set up the uh, premise. It's kind of moldy and there's strange fungi growing on there. And yeah, each one of these places is going to have a little hidden shrine to almost the uh, elder elemental god of evil. Well, which you will find, you know, somewhere within the lower levels of each of these modules. Uh, it, like creating a thread of connection all the way through them that ultimately leads you to the next installment now for your hardcore greyhawk nerds the amount the descriptions of the fungi the elder elements of evil the ties to ias and later zugmoy in the temple of elemental evil should become apparent if the players if you're playing this as part of a series of the earlier temple of elemental evil uh strange fungi should be a warning to anybody who has fought zugmoy the demon lady lady of fungi so anyway besides my little uh uh, Greyhawk nerdgasm there. You can uh, carry on there, Mr. Hanna. So <laughs> let's summarize with the uh, with this that the uh, it's basically a loot and shoot for the most part. You go in and you're going to be fighting the giants. Now, in the first part here, the hill giants are not particularly on guard, but their chieftain, Nasra, is a particularly cunning brute of a hill giant. Now, most hill giants are not very clever, and their idea of cunning is to throw a rock at it before approaching to smack it with their club. <laughs> I hit you with a rock. <laughs> Nasser is a lot more of a forward thinker. Now inside here, you're not going to just face hill giants. You're going to face a conclave. They're courting other giants, including stone and some cloud giants. Yeah, so they, they have visitors, okay, in the, the steading of the hill giant chief. Uh, aside from their, their servantry, which Our includes one. ogres, uh, at and orc slaves, yeah. Yeah, the uh, the cave bear that is the chief's pet is no joke either. Okay. Oh, yeah. Isn't is it named Snookums? What? Well, I know it's under his throne, or I mean, it's under his chair at the yeah. table. I don't remember it being named Snookums. Snookums? Snookums, the uh, cave bear. Has that jeweled collar around its neck. I'll be doggone. Well, that's, that actually makes it 10 times more frightening. <laughs> uh, uh, I would be severely intimidated about being annihilated by a giant cave bear named Snookums. Uh, now, that said, when we say loot and shoot, uh, one thing that they did not skimp on is the description of the available treasures. However, in the finest tradition of the earliest D&D modules, not everything is where you're going to easily access it, okay? It's yeah. not all... A lot of it is hidden by illusions or secret doors or hidden chests yeah. that are going to take some searching to find. There's a goodly measure of stuff to be taken from the personal effects of those who have been slain. But the uh, truly good stuff. Yeah, the really remarkable items are never just laying out in the open. Uh, I mean, you, you may work yep. your way to a final treasure room and get some great loot there, but at least, I would say a quarter to a third of the treasures listed here are things that if you're not checking out all the rooms and you're not checking out every nook and cranny, you're going to miss them. And that tells you something about the style of play circa the 1970s. Yeah, so the upper levels... Like, is... if you don't do the homework, you don't get the loot. Right, and that's a big lesson to learn, and I think most of us took away from that. 
Now, the big, the upper levels are pretty much perfunctory because apparently there's a great feast going on. So a lot of noises are not going to be unheard because there's a rowdy fest going on in the main hall. So they're not going to know. Now, we're going to take a moment here and we're going to go into our Wayback Machine. To <laughs> back in the early days of 1985, to when we were playing this, and um, we took a session to plan out how we were going to strategically go in here. And we were very careful thinkers back in the day. Now, Mike had was playing a fighter. And uh, I'll let Mike narrate what happened when we decided before bursting in onto the main fest hall, where we had, out, we had went thoroughly and meticulously around eliminating guards and sentries. Oh, yeah, they did such a great job. I mean, they were just playing, like, uh, assassin, the role-playing game. You know, they... They've neutralized the guards, ninja style. They've approached with total silence. No one knows we're here. We've crept upon them unawares. All that remains is the main doors into the entry of like this actual hallway. We need our spell tacticals and our missile weapons and like our, our everything has to be just right. Basically, I, I don't know how to put this, but what had happened was I was playing a fighter with a two-handed sword who against a party of spellcasters and archers who pretty much always attacked first and always killed everything we encountered. I hadn't gotten... Not always, but they got in the main damage. Yeah, so what I was basically relegated to was the mop-up crew. Okay, like, we've killed all the primary opponents. Uh, I killed uh, two orc servants, you know. And... You know what? A couple of sessions of that, and I had a head of steam on me that was absolutely insane. So I had my plan. When we showed up at the steading of the Hill Giant Chiefs, uh, I passed a note to Randy explaining exactly what was about to happen, while the rest of the party spent almost like half an hour, 45 minutes negotiating their careful plan. Oh, no. I just finally... Oh, no, no, no. I All lost right. my cool. I'm going to interject right I there. It wasn't cool. 45 minutes. It was about a, a good... 15 minute bowl session followed by about 10 minutes of actual note writing and planning and yeah, during that 10 that. minutes he wasn't having it, it was interminable it was interminable and so he was upset now he had forgotten all the times that he had been the frontline fighter and recipient of holding the line versus basically being the mobile meat shield yeah I had much more relevance in some of the earlier modules like if, if you rolled the, the clock back just a couple levels you know, I had been critical infrastructure to the party, but it had been a while. So he passed me a note, and roughly what ended up happening is he said he went into the hall, the uh, doors, which were already open and or half cracked, and we had observed a few uh, servants going in and out, the orcs. And anyway, after that, he went in, barred the door shut, took out and drank two potions one of Cloud Giant Strength and the other. Of haste and went. No, uh, it was just the haste potion. It was just the haste potion. I thought you took the cloud. No. Oh, no. we were playing back in one uh, two e, and I couldn't drink a second and potion. We could, you could. It's just that there's always a the, percentage. I didn't want to risk missability, but I was wanted blowing himself up. I drank the potion of speed, and with a giant slaying two handed sword. Yeah, he started cutting him off as it took us five rounds to break down the door <laughs> without his massive strength and. Yeah, uh, by that time, he had decimated their ranks and uh, had, of course, had to chug down a couple potions right after we made our, our grand entrance and now became the new focus of fear. 
uh, ringing in the later part of the hall with a wall of fire. And of course, the whole place is sodden, so it does not burn easily. Yeah, if the players somehow manage to magically create fire and burn the building, uh, you know, the, ins the instructions given to the old school DM right there in the booklet, right? You know, because there's always the possibility it's a wood building. I cast like fireball after fireball on it, and that's all I memorized. That was the thing that would likely happen, but it was soaking wet. And so the slow nature of accumulating fire damage meant that the creatures would have a great deal of time to escape to the dungeon levels, and then the players would lose any and or all treasure in the Yeah, and our wall of fire, uh, the room was large enough, the banquet hall was large enough to have a wall of fire so we could remain out of the damage zone. And oh, yeah, that's pretty much what we did. And uh, <laughs> Came he went in and he was just a grin off his face. <laughs> not, you couldn't jackhammer it off with, well, you couldn't uh, knock it off with a steam. So anyway, uh, the first level after you finish it up, you're surprisingly given to a dungeon level. And more or less, that's where the rest of the hill giants will end up retreating. And this where it starts to pick up some intensity. And in the lower levels here in the uh, area, you're going to encounter more than just giants. Including a creepy cave just full of carrion crawlers. Like uh, over a hundred, there's endless numbers of them in there. Yeah, Cavern of the Carrion Crawlers. Uh, oh my goodness. You know, all sorts of bones, human and otherwise, are heaped and piled here and there. Seldom does any other sort of creature venture into this place. For any that do, usually end up adding to their or adding their bones to the litter. Uh, there are two crawlers in the northeast finger of the cave. Every turn, there is a 30% chance that one to three more of these monsters will appear. Dice for hit points. Uh, from the north or south, along the stream, or by one of the sinkholes. Uh, so, the longer you stay, the more they they're, come. Yep, they're going to start uh, coming out. Uh, now, aside from the creepiness, um, we mentioned the weird abandoned temple. You know, Yeah, this it ends up that the setting was built purposely on this old site of a former ruin. So you get a little bit of a dungeon adventure in here rather than a soggy old mossy um, woodland hall. You end up with a rather large amount of monsters crammed in a small area. So this becomes more of a typical dungeon crawl at this point. And at the end here, nominally, if Nasra is around, he will rally the rest of the uh, Hill Giant survivors for a last stand or try to dash out if he can. I believe it was in a later version of that uh, when I was playing a different fighter. Uh, did I not rally the orcs that had been enslaved into service? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I was using them. Uh, at, they had terrible morale and will inevitably be like turn on players as soon as they have the first glimpse of freedom. But I, I did rally them. It's like I was, I'm leading an orc horde. This is excellent. Uh, I, I had a lot, of, a lot of fun with that part. The inevitable betrayal was pretty salty, but, you know, eh. what are you going to do? They're orcs. <laughs> they do. So, yeah, normally you're going to find some magical chain in the uh, loot at the end of the adventure, and that's going to, if you turn it to a figure eight, yep, you uh, get immediately transported to a glacial rift far away, and apparently this was a device that could be used in Ascension. Well... The chain of uh, weird black metal and the instructions on how to use it are there. Uh, but there's also a map provided for the glacial rift of the frost giant yard. Yeah, along uh, with the smart players map. will use the metal loop at a later date when they are well prepared. Right, but if you just play, start playing with it, you could find yourself immediately 
he's transported there. But <laughs> very funny. yeah, there's a lot of stuff here, including the two notorious flaming swords on the wall. So we're not going to talk about that. We're just yeah, going to move yeah. right into yeah. You wanted to bring up my whole temper tantrum and murder hoboing. It wasn't we're, a temper we're, tantrum. We're going to mention. Just... We're going to mention Neil and Bob the flaming swords. Two intelligent flaming swords who are very chatty. And uh, as soon as we found them, <laughs> uh, I voiced the flaming swords named them neil and bob <laughs> oh i haven't been picked up by a strange man in years oh boy here we go and at that moment not one of the party's warriors would pick up one of those swords yeah just all of a sudden everybody got very quiet and was like well, I, I, I don't want i don't want it no thank you <laughs> it's like oh come on yeah, man they got uh detective visibility man and uh fine gems yeah they were awesome swords I would have dual wielded them, now, <laughs> and they would have loved it. Another little thing here that's been kind of a trope that's carried out is what's in a giant's bag container table. Now each one of these modules had a various uh, their own one, but it was pretty much a play on the others. Uh, they changed a little <laughs> bit here and there, but uh, there are a lot of giant bags left in containers that you could search through. So these giant bags were obviously you're going to dice for the contents. They could have things like cheese, hard, slightly moldy, and stinky. Or a drinking horn, or haunted, a haunch of meat. But could also contain like uh, silver coins, or uh, teeth, teeth or tusks, animal, no value, ivory. It's like okay, uh, useless crap that nobody wants, as we would say. And you know what? It's interesting that a lot of players would end up looking at that, but here they are digging through various containers. And the DM being able to give the real treasure here is the DM is never caught unprepared for what's in a container. And there are many charts and tables in the back of the old DM's guide that have just contents of what's in an urn or contents of a tomb or a crypt. And so yeah, there was a generous pre-assumption by the staff at TSR and their original creatives that they were introducing this material to people who did not have like a medieval lore scholarship right. level knowledge. And so here they were handed the tools they needed to adjudicate and then randomly describe things on the fly. That was the kind of gear that like they gave you that had your back. I couldn't approve more. Now here uh, they give some uh, cautionary advice again and you get right into this one once you use the uh, chain or you have made the trek across land to get to the uh, glacial rift of the Ferocian Jarl. And they have a little bit of uh, environmental information of what's going on here. Obviously it's going to be really cold and you're going to need to prepare. And uh, assuming so, there's also a nearby cave where you can uh, hole up and uh, heal your wounds again that normally might be uh, if the party is careful and doesn't make repeated trips too much the frost giants won't be able to follow them back or shouldn't be able to so this gives them a little hidey hole to come up if, as long as they don't stay here too long because in here where the first one was the hill giants are kind of doltish frost giants are cunning they are yeah. they are prepared and they know their territory well and they are not they're completely immune to the cold. So in here you go into this rift and the rift is kind of a hodgepodge of places to go. Normally you will uh, probably try your players will probably get involved into a running battle in the halls which will alert the frost giant Jarl. Now him being who he is and his wife his mate is no inconsiderable uh, Lehman. He will throw himself and her. They will eagerly engage in combat unless the players seem to be wielding a lot of fireballs, in which case they'll kind of leave. But 
you know, in here, uh, one of the better things is a Ramorez. And yeah, we have a story about that too. The monk. <laughs> a Ramorez is an ice worm that burrows through the glaciers by its virtue of its own self generated heat, which is so intense that it can literally melt metals on one touch. Its back becomes red hot and thus it burrows through the ice that way. He decided to jump on it. And he had heard the legend of the Remorhas riders of uh, like a, a elite group of monks in Forgotten Realms. That like that was the final exam to join the uppermost ranks of their order, and he wanted to recreate that experience. However, he did not belong to that order, nor had he had any of the training, nor did he take the time out to use or find any materials to prevent him from being burned alive. He simply jumped on the back of a Remorhas. And took one to 100 points of damage, which instantly annihilated this character. We're just kind of all like, well, we just lost a month. So that just happened. Yeah, it was a moment of shock and surprise. There's also a mated pair of uh, white dragons in here. And you're also going to find a weird coven of ice toads that are around some kind of weird purple ice sculpture. I don't know about that one, but you know, that's the weird fantasy yeah. that inhabited this. It's the 70s. Yeah. And I feel like there should be a metal album cover that has like, you know, frost tunes around a weird ice obelisk. I know. And then, you know, a cavern with five ogre magi. Yikes. Yeah, that wasn't a fun one. That was, well, we're going to retreat because... Two of the party members are near death or have been recovered from negative hit points and are near death and require healing. Yeah, that's why these modules were like 8th through 10th level. Everybody should be at least 8th level higher if there's a small party. Now, just in the first module and then ninth level in the second module. And if they're, you know, appropriately prepared by the time they hit the Hall of the Fire Giant King, they should have... 10th level characters in their mix or at the very least a very large party of 9th level characters because oh. you're going to need them high level spells and heal ups oh yeah so um, fighting the Jarl and his uh, chieftainess they are uh, his lady is she, they're no um, they're not slouches okay. yeah, they, they are well <laughs> above a, a frost giant at that time and you're able to find some unique spells in here as well as uh, a way to get to the Fire Giants area, which again um, will take you to a, uh, by touching a rod, I believe, on one of the halls, it'll take you right there to about 50 feet distant from Snurry's Hall, the Hall of Fire Giant King. But I want to stop there and just talk about one other thing. This module has a hammer of thunderbolts. <laughs> in here. And it, as another uh, if your characters are very thorough and search the glacial room before entering the lower halls where the frost uh, giant you're all in his lady are as well. You're going to find another fire giant sling so, or another giant sling sword. And here you come to the last part which is the culmination of all three of the fire giants hall. King Shnuri, Iron, Iron Belly, and Queen Froopy. Queen Froopy. Oh Good yeah. Land. Well, yeah, she's so hideous, she can kill creatures with less than one hit die. Now, <laughs> this one is a tough module, and rather than, like, the characters sneaking around and trying to find things, uh, you know, running afoul of the Frost Giant Jarl's uh, a large guard, his Hearse Carls, here, King Snurry takes the fight right to you. 
He's going to start out right away, and he's aided by a villainous dwarf named Obmi, which, uh, yeah, talking about the uh, characters from Greyhawk lore. And that fight can, if your characters just walk in and expect, like, okay, we're going to just kind of get the lay of the land first. Nope. He'll take the starch right out of your sails with just coming right into the fight, wading in with a his full weight of his bodyguard. Yeah, there's a tacit acknowledgement that the players have been disrupting the other giant locations and that there has been communication between all of the various giant enclaves and that they know by this point that, hey, we've lost all communication with the hill giants and with the frost giants. Batten down the hatches, like all guards on full alert. Uh, every trap is at the ready. Everybody is fully armed, armored, and ready to rock at any minute. So the players will not find a soft target in this one. It simply does not exist. Yeah, so there's going to be a fight right off the bat, and, you know, there's a lot of fire giants to overcome here, so this is going to test the party's resolve. And there's two dungeon levels underneath the hall itself, and there's some NPCs you can encounter, which can help you in later adventures. There's a a high-level rogue who is potentially capable of being useful, as long as uh, you don't mind some items left out going missing suddenly. Yeah, the captive rogue uh, who, you know, classic era, she's smart and a hottie. uh, And a high-level, 11th-level thief. But her principal designs are on acquiring as much loot as possible before she slips away. Uh, She'll be helpful, and she will bide her time and patiently determine who has the best treasure and how portable that treasure is. And we'll strike at when the time is opportune. Right. So that that's there's a lot of trolls later. There's a lot of trolls here, which ironically don't regenerate with fire, which the fire giants appreciate because they intimidate the living daylights out of them by the fact that we're immune to fire and we'll put your head into a fire. Again. You remember that? It hurt. I don't like. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very obedient trolls in this location. Not a common behavior amongst troll kind, uh, but surprisingly obedient trolls. Yeah. Stunning levels of treasure are a major feature throughout this Yeah, because this logic. is where all it's culminated. And finally, you come you face-to-face with your real enemy, the drow. And yeah, there's just a few of them here, but enough to give you pause for thought as they throw literally the uh, kitchen sink and most of their spells and abilities are going to be mysterious, especially if drow were at that time rather new and novel. Uh, evil elves that uh, possess a stunning array of abilities and magic items. And that pretty much rounds it up because they're going to go into the uh, lower levels and lead a trail of to set all the wandering monsters in the path of the party and then uh, make their way down into the depths of the earth. Yeah, more drow opponents down below and they've got to kill their way through it. And it becomes painfully obvious that the... Uh, Chaos and Evil has a source, and you're going to have to go further to get it. So that brings us to the close of G1 through G3. Yeah, it opens it right up into the sentence of yours. So again, we hope you enjoyed our overview of this, and we had some fun talking about it and reminiscing some of our favorite parts. But if you've had some parts about Giants uh, Adventure 2, let us know on our uh, Facebook page, The Dice of Streaming. Let us know there. And I think that's going to do it for us. So hope you enjoyed, and let us know what you think. Give us that call in on dang old ink crap. So until next time, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.